Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to the podcast, Agents of Change. I'm your host for this episode, Leman Tash. For this episode, I would like to welcome our special guest, President of Southern New Hampshire University, Paul LeBlanc. Paul LeBlanc, we are honored to have you as a guest in our podcast. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Laman. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, as you said, I'm the president at Southern New Hampshire University. And for your listeners who may not be that familiar with us, we are a private university based in Manchester, New Hampshire, but very much a global organization. We have over 180,000 students we serve, making us perhaps the largest university in the country. Um, but those learners are, you know, every form you can imagine. We, we educate working adults who have kids and busy lives and are trying to finish that degree they never completed. We have 18% of our students are veterans who are using the GI Bill. We have 30,000 students of color, largest, larger than the largest HBCU in the country. Um, we have increasingly large number of traditional age students who are choosing online instead of campus. And then we work with refugee populations in Africa and the Middle East with DACA students in the Rio Grande Valley. So it's, a, it's an honor to be part of this organization. I've been here for 19 years now uh, and watched it grow um, over that time. Thank you. In this podcast, I would like to discuss some themes from your recently last year published book, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them. How I came across this book. Every time we meet our students or we survey our students and ask them what helped them most with their success, they don't mention curricular readings or assignments. They always talk about advisors and instructors who made them feel carried and accepted. When we ask students what made them feel belonged, they again are talking about what made them feel cared. This is how I started to look for research about importance of care and social interactions beyond academically rigorous curricular and content, which no doubt is very important too, and came across your book. I think your story of an immigrant child adapting to new social and cultural, not speaking economic, realities of your new home country is relatable not only to people with immigrant background like myself, but to anybody. Think about our non-traditional students. You mentioned they are very large population of all our students who enter this new social and cultural environment after years of break from school. Or our first-generation students who have no role model experience in their family. Or the same students in the refugee camps. They all face similar challenges of finding their place and their path. My first question is related to this. Looking at your personal story, and please feel free to share whatever you want to. What do you think was the most helpful and important to you for your adjustment and moving forward in that new environment? Yeah, you've touched upon them, and I think so keenly, which is that what was required uh, for the kind of transformational experiences that I had through education and I, you know, you've alluded to this, but I'm sort of an unapologetic and schlock lucky sort of, you know, proponent of the American dream and that uh, I lived it in a very visceral way, right? My 
my parents had eighth grade educations. My mom worked in a factory till she was in her 70s. My dad was a day laborer, and we immigrated to the United States um, from a hard scrabble kind of subsistence little farming village um, and found ourselves living, you know, in the Boston area, the greater Boston area. Um, so it was a it was a very different world. But when I look at the life that my parents had, where we left, and then the life of my two daughters now in their 30s, they're like different universes. And what made my daughters experience their lives possible was the transformative experience of education that I had access to high quality, affordable, higher education, public education first in K-12 and then higher education. And throughout that educational pathway, the thing that made the most difference now to get to your specific question was relationships, was someone who took an interest in me and who saw me for who I was uh, as, a, as a young person. Um, and they did two things. So one is that sense of being seen. When I talk about mattering, and I know you want to talk about that a little bit more. Then one, and then, then, but mattering is not enough. So the second chapter of my book is about aspiration. And what I had were people who saw my potential in ways that I didn't. And they lifted my sights. And I often talk about this, that great mentors are not about giving you counsel. They do that, certainly. Great mentors help you dream bigger dreams for yourself. Dreams that you haven't thought of on your own. And, you know, for me, if you were, my mom passed away some years ago, but if she were sitting with us, she would recall for you a conversation with my sixth grade teacher at a time when, you know, our very working class neighborhood, not very many people at all went to college and no one in my family had gone. And Mr. Schlafman, my sixth grade teacher, in a parent conference said to my mother, you know, I think Paul could go to college someday. I think he's college material. And this hit her like a lightning bolt. My mom cleaned the houses of wealthy people whose kids went to college, but she never thought about her kids going to college. And here was a teacher saying, your youngest, I was the youngest of five, your youngest could go to college someday. She didn't know how that would happen. She didn't know how to pay for it. She didn't know the process. She didn't know anything about applications. She never heard of a FAFSA. But all of a sudden she had this possibility and she was going to hold it. She held on to it. And, and then I was going to hold on to it by dint of her passion and commitment. So I think, you know, it was that first teacher who, who articulated a bigger vision or dream. And then, you know, eventually in high school, Mrs. Collins, Mrs. Elizabeth Collins, my social sciences teacher, who was the one that said, you can go to college, like you should be going to college. And I wasn't thinking about that. I was actually thinking about the military, um, which is another way that working class kids get out of the world in which they find themselves, you know, and, but she inspired me and, and helped me think about that and how that process could look. And, 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 you know, I stayed in touch with her the rest of my life. I spoke at her retirement dinner some years ago. And then similarly in college, you know, great faculty, uh, Helen Heinemann, who was Professor Heinemann, who was an English faculty member, later on became president of Framingham State, where I attended, who in my senior year said, okay, Paul, we, you know, what do you think about graduate school? And I said, I'm, I'm not thinking about graduate school. Like, what are you talking about? I was lucky to get through college. And she kind of took me by the scruff of the neck and said, absolutely not. You have to go on. Like, you need to be in academia. You know, and it wasn't a dream I was dreaming for myself. And she articulated it and made it real and then got involved and made it possible, like helped me get into Boston College and into a master's program, et cetera, et cetera. So at every step of the way, and you, I think you captured quite nicely as a woman who I don't quote in the book, but whose work I've found since, 
who does a lot of work around poverty and extreme poverty. And she said something parallel or something that echoed what you said, which is when people escape poverty, they never cite a program. They never cite a policy. They never cite a system. They always cite a person, someone who took an interest and helped them, helped lift them out of poverty. And I think that's, that's really was the critical factor in my own story. And, you know, as part of writing Broken, my book, uh, I spent a lot of time with people like Jessica Benjamin, who's a noted psychologist at NYU, um, and Matt Steinfeld at, at Yale, and Greg Elliott at Brown, University of Sociologist. And all of them would say, but particularly the psychologists would say, that if you're going to transform lives, you can only do it in relationship. You can't do it with technology. You can't do it with other you know, systems tools you have to do it in relationship and a lot of the time i spent in my book we're talking to people who are working in human systems of care so healthcare, k-12 mental health addiction treatment about how they're rethinking that work starting with focused on centering around human relationships Thank you. And that was very interesting part of your book, how you place education as a part of other human servicing industries. And I'm thinking we also have departments who prepare our students for those industries. So our students come and socialize in this environment where they can go out later and work in the human serving industry. So they learn kind of certain experiences, right? And relationship building ways that they can take and transport. And this is where maybe education plays a different role. And this is where we go to mattering because, and I wanted to talk about mattering because I feel like it was a thick thread that was woven through all your book. You you come back to it in many different chapters. And let, let me then Okay, let me then ask you, what does mattering mean to you and why do you think it's important in all human caring social institutions, Absolutely. education being one of them? Yeah, and I have to credit the work of Greg Elliott, who I mentioned a moment ago, who's a wonderful noted sociologist at Brown University. And Greg began his work looking at gangs and why do young people join gangs, which are dangerous and, and you know, dysfunctional in so many ways. But what he observed in his research was that the people who joined gangs were often kids who came out of homes where nothing about their home life said that they mattered to anybody. There weren't meals on the table. No one was greeting them when they came home. No one was making sure they were dressed properly. Maybe there was no heat. Maybe parents were largely absent. But the only thing that a child could take from that is that in this place, I don't matter. And then they would leave in the morning and go to a broken down school with mold on the walls and dripping radiators and, and books that hadn't been updated in 40 years and teachers who were burned out despite their best efforts. And the only thing they could conclude from that school was that they didn't matter very much to anybody there, that no one really knew who they were or cared very much. And, you know, and in the walk through the neighborhood past broken down playgrounds and maybe negative interactions with police, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing they conclude is that in that community, no one seemed to care, that, that they didn't matter to anybody. And then along comes a gang and says, if you join us, you matter so much, we'll kill for you. And by the way, mattering is also expectation. So we'll have expectations of you. It matters to us. You matter to us. Gangs make all the sense in the world. Gangs are the first time you feel like you matter. And that's why people join gangs. 
So we, in lots of systems of care, organizations, retail, like things that aren't systems of care, but organizations that you and I and others engage with, they all want us to feel like we matter, but they talk about belonging and affinity. And, you know, I belong to professional associations, as do you, and I know what matters to them is that I write my membership check every year, my dues, um, and I value, you know, the publications I get and I value the conferences. But do I think those organizations know me as a human being? No, that's just belonging. There are lots of ways to belong to things. Mattering is another step above. Mattering says, I know you and see you in your complexity. I see you below the surface level. I see you below, below and beyond the labels that we put on people. And it's, it says, secondly, you, I not only know you, but I invest in you. I'll invest my time or my resources or my knowledge, but I'm investing you in some fashion. And the last is, I'm not just investing you as an act of charity. I'm investing you because I want the value you bring to our relationship. It's apparent to you that I value you, not just matter. I don't just see you. So the first, if you think of that, that sort of ladder of three things, Mattering is first, you know, we've had this experience, you know, it's rare, but sometimes you meet a stranger and whatever the context is, maybe it's at a dinner party or some other setting at work. And you, you walk away from that first conversation with this kind of wondrous sense of what wow, they really get me. Like, you know, every once in a while you, 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 you stumble into that kind of profoundly good conversation where it feels like it goes well below the surface into more meaningful, like, oh, this person really gets me. Maybe you have commonality of backgrounds or whatever, but you connect. And the second, though, if you think about investing, you, it's the way employees feel like, you know, does my organization actually do the minimal of what they need to keep me employed here? Or do they actually invest in me as a human being? Are they investing in my development? We've seen this with post-pandemic or the pandemic, we're still kind of in the pandemic, but you know, the sort of changes in workforce, one of the things, the number one thing that McKinsey cites about why people leave their employer is actually they don't feel like they see any development in them, no investment in them, no path for their growth. That's the number one reason they leave. And then the third piece is that sense of, you're not just investing in me because I'm a better worker and that's good for you, but you actually ask me what I think. You take my ideas and put them to work. You value me in some fashion. If I feel like my voice is never heard, if I feel like my contributions are never sort of registered, it doesn't like you can still feel like I matter and you take good care of me, but I don't want to just be taken good care of. I don't want you to just invest in my development. I want to have impact and value valuing someone says you have impact to me, which is why, you know, Jessica Benjamin would say that all successful counseling is really kind involves a, a, a condition of what she calls thirdness. And the thirdness is not just, you know, what I'm doing to help you, what I bring to the game as a professional, but that we share this other third state, which is our relationship. You know, there used to be this notion of uh, your professional distance. And now we talk about your emotional availability that people have to feel like, you know, that remember sometimes you'll hear people say of a politician, well, I don't know, like, I think I'd vote for him. Well, he's somebody like I could have a beer with. What they really are saying is I'm connecting relationally, even no matter what their qualifications. So that was a famous quote about George Bush when he was running, George W. Bush. Like, well, he seems like a guy you could have a beer with. What does that mean, really? It means I feel like I could connect relationally in this other way, right? So mattering, I think, is really critical. And the irony of so many of our big social systems is that in this, for the sake of efficiency, 
cost savings, uh, repeatable processes, right? The use of technology, which wants everything kind of neatly structured, is that they all tend to want to drive human interaction out because that's not only expensive, it's messy. It's hard to measure. Human beings aren't clean and easy and segmented. Human beings are messy. And, and, and so big systems for the sake of efficiency, as opposed to outcomes, they're willing like to sacrifice outcomes. America pays more per person for healthcare than almost than any place in the world, and yet has considerably poor outcomes, right? So we've built a healthcare system that actually doesn't actually routinely dehumanizes people, doesn't make people feel like they matter. You know, I just came across an interesting uh, organization based in the Netherlands that is rethinking nursing and really putting patients at the center of the relationship and letting patients be greater agents of their own care. But it requires you to change your relationship as a nurse. You don't come in as the expert that knows better than you. It's actually, no, you know better than me. You know yourself, you know your nutrition, you know your lifestyle, you know your stresses. Help me, like teach me about you. And then let's together, thirdness, let's together work to this third state of improved health for you. Right, but it puts the person back at the center of the relationship. That's what mattering really does. And, and recognizing agency, right? That's important part too. Recognizing human agency in these relationships, like where people are not just customers, people are not just something to teach or Always. to do something with, but they come with their personalities, they come with certain knowledge, they come with certain values, and kind of ex- t- taking those into consideration and building on those. Completely. I think there's a a chapter in the book about stories. And I think, you know, one of the ways I like to think about this is that we all have a narrative about ourselves. And some ways we like to tell simple narratives because that's what the world wants of us. Like, oh, you're a university president. That must be an interesting job. Tell me about university presidents. I think I know something about that. But university presidents only one small piece of who I am. It's the piece that people see on the surface. But I'm the father of two daughters. I'm an immigrant. Uh, first generation. Uh, I grew up Catholic. That means something in my life. You know, people are complex. And I think the most powerful systems of mattering, the most powerful systems of care are, to your point, seeing people in their full complexity, not seeing them with a single story, but seeing the multiple stories that they carry within them. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment that you also bring at the end of your book when you talk about reconciling, right? This growing big organizations. We all want to grow, right? Every organization, yep. every company we want to be- become bigger. And with scale comes, as you just mentioned, bureaucracies and efficient like technologies to improve efficiencies. Yep. But then there there are these multiple complex stories that might get lost in between for the sake of, again, as you mentioned, efficiency or being like fast, productive. So I will let, I will bring it to the third question. When we are facing the situations, right? When we want to grow, when we want to get bigger, but we still want to keep that human aspect in the organization, what would be your advice? So my advice is really based on my interviews with really remarkable entrepreneurs who are in fact rethinking how to do scaled systems of care, which put people at the middle. And what they have all done uniformly is they've flipped the script on how we think about scale. So the way that we most typically think about scale is, let me build a platform or a system of scale 
deploying technology, repeatable processes, get the messiness out. Let's put, let's minimize the human. So if I can use a chatbot instead of a person, that's great. Let's do that because that's cheap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they minimize, minimize, minimize the human. And then what you get are systems that make people feel like they're not seen, that they're not, that they don't matter. Oftentimes, by the way, those systems and the in the way in which they make people feel unseen are actually reinforced by the way well, how we the business models, what we pay for, what we won't pay for, et cetera, et cetera. Oftentimes, for example, in healthcare, insurance companies don't want to pay very much for human interactions like counseling sessions. Mental health quite often puts a very severe limit on how many sessions you can have. But they will pay endlessly for things like laboratory tests, which may or may not actually make you feel any better or make you feel seen and respected. So when I to go to your question, then how do you rethink this? The innovators I interviewed actually start with the question, what are the most important human interactions I need to transform this life? The person that's on the other side of the table. What are the human relationships that are most important? And, and can I really understand what those are? And then can I hold those sacred? Can I use that as my starting point? And then deploy technology, systems, processes, et cetera, to everything else so that you scale not by minimizing the human, you scale by taking all of the net, all of the administrative bureaucracy and busyness out of the system that you can, so that you're really spending your resources on the most important thing that changes that drive success, which are people. So let me give you an example, just to make this more concrete. If you take a look at a big scale system, K-12, for example, and ask teachers how much of their time is spent on kids, versus how much of their time is spent on satisfying the administrative bureaucratic needs of the school system, they will tell you they spend far too much time on the latter and not the former. None of the latter, those bureaucratic administrative processes, do nothing to change a child's life. But we spend enormous amounts of time and resources on them. And, and you know, I was interviewed about the book and someone who works in K-12 said to me, you know, you say that we need a system in which teachers love their students. Oh my God, if I say to my teachers, you have to find time and space to love your students, and they're going to say, are you kidding me? You give me lunch duty, I've got to fill out this paperwork, I have to file these lesson plans, then I have to schedule this piece, then I have this professional development, which is required. Like, when am I going to find the time and space to love my students? And I said back, that's the point. Get disciplined about getting all of that administrative noise minimized or out of the system so that they do have time for the thing that we know matters most. So all of these innovators are thinking about scale in that way. If I look even at a place like SNHU, where I think I'm proud that we really are very student focused, and I, you know, a lot of that relationship resides with our academic advisors who stay with the student throughout their journey so they really get to know them. They know them in all of their messiness and human complexity. But if I, if you were to go talk to one of our advisors and say, how much of your day is spent directly in communication and interaction with our students versus all the stuff that SNHU asks you to do, putting things in our CRM, filing this report, doing this piece, what they would tell you is they spend far too much time satisfying the system as opposed to satisfying the genuine need of the student. So I think what, again, just to reiterate the, the, the key point here is 
understand the human relationships that are most important. So a, a student who wants to find out what they owe us, that's not an important relational question. They don't need to talk to somebody. That can be a chatbot. That can be automated. But a student who says, oh my God, I don't know if I can do the work. That's a human relationship. That's a moment of, of you know, uh, reassurance and help and making them feel like they believe in themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So, so knowing what, what relationships matter, centering your whole business model on those relationships, holding those relationships, holding that ground sacred, and then automate the hell out of everything else you can. And that is a great advice. Thank you so much. We're actually at the time. So I would like to thank you for your time, for coming here, for sharing your insights. There were so many things in your book that I would love to discuss with you again, maybe in future, if you would of like course. to come to us. But for now, thank you again. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your ideas with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and an honor to join you. This is Yaman Tash, your host for Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.